you know, there's there was the season of the scallop, there was the season of the crudo, and we laugh at it and we kind of make fun of it, but truthfully, it's because they're smart and they're limited in time, and that applies to the home kitchen too. When I have 20 minutes to make dinner and I want something that's impressive and beautiful and simple to cook, go for the scallop. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we're talking to Gail Simmons, who is a judge on Top Chef and also the author of the recent cookbook, Bringing It Home. Later on the show, we'll be talking to Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen, who's going to answer a question from a reader. First of all, just what did you and Gail talk about in your conversation? It was a really meaningful conversation, Anna. We, we talked about her world travels, living on a kibbutz in Israel, going to school in Montreal, her, her life on Top Chef. But I think... Um, near the end uh, of the conversation, she talked about abuse in the kitchen. She, she's worked in several kitchens in New York, and she's really honest about the types of abuse she she experienced, some of the abuse she did not experience. And I think her response was pretty surprising. So I think it's worth worth checking out. Here's Gail Simmons talking to Matt at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. So I want to talk about the book. I, I got to look at it. I've had it for several weeks, and I've got to, like, page through and I learned a lot about you in <laughs> this personal. book. It is a personal book. So I learned about your honeymoon in Hanoi, yes. searching for Chaka Lavang, which I've done myself, but you did not actually end up going to Chaka no. Lavang. I failed. I cried on the street for six hours, maybe 12. Oh, and so then good. I learned to make it myself because I couldn't ever get to the real place. I learned you lived on a kibbutz. You're a kibbutznik. You lived there when you were in high school, right? Um, after or- my senior year of high school, yeah. um, I spent two and a half months on a kibbutz in northern Israel near the Galilee. And um, that was, I worked on a chicken farm picking eggs, not slaughtering chickens, although we did have to kill some chickens when they would get sick (laughs) only. Uh, But no, I was picking eggs and then I was transferred to the kitchen and that was the very first professional kitchen. Well, professional is sort of a... And you learned to make schnitzel with za'atar, which is the recipe in the book, which I think that's that's like one of the national dishes of Israel. It really is. I mean, there's a lot of schnitzel in Israel because of so many Eastern European immigrants, obviously, when the country was founded and they made schnitzel like every Sunday was family dinner night. Everyone eats communally every other day of the week, but on Sunday nights, everyone eats in their own homes with their families. And so we would be invited every different Sunday to a different family of friends that we'd made on the kibbutz. And they always made schnitzel, and my favorite was schnitzel with sitar. So it's in the book. So there's more. I've learned more. You went to school in Montreal. You're born in Toronto. But the like, Quebecois cuisine, like poutine and mm-hmm. the, like, the rich braises. Like, yes, that there's was... a lot of... I grew up in Toronto which is a very Anglophone city, obviously an English city, but I spent four years in Montreal. I married a Montrealer. My mother's from Montreal. And I sort of, I, I align, I really, I don't know, in my head, I'm a Montrealer. I'm, I, that would offend a lot of my family. But um, somehow there's like four or five Quebecois dishes that showed up in my book. There's a, a pork and bean stew with yes. maple cream. And they're all maple syrup recipes. We're a giant cliche, basically. <laughs> Our, the whole country, but there's a tarto souk, which is a very traditional maple sugar tart, and there's a uh, pudding chômeur, which is a maple and pear sort of sticky toffee pudding type type dessert. So I also learned about charcuterie garni, right? Yes. Charcuterie garni, you an Alsatian dish, which you learned from you Barry Keller, is yes. that right? Well, I learned about it. My mother actually made it when we were growing up. Okay. Um, it's a very traditional dish in Alsace and in Austria, Germany sort of area. And it's actually a very complicated dish to make 
when you are in that part of the world, but I've simplified it and I just call it sausage and sauerkraut so that people actually make it and aren't freaked out. Man, I learned about Piri Piri chicken. I learned about your lazy lobster pies mm. that you make um, summers in Massachusetts. That's right. I discovered a recipe for lazy lobster pie at a lobster shack that I go to all the time when we're there. And two years ago when I went there to have it, it had changed hands. There'd be new owners and there was no lazy lobster pie on the menu. So I made it myself you made it. because we all need lazy lobster pie in our lives. So Gil Simmons, you're a well-traveled individual. You've, you've seen the world, not just through your life on television, but through, uh, you know, through life. But you also had this great ability. And I think this is a big reason why this book is such a success is that every recipe has been simplified, has been pared down to the essence of the dish. Every recipe is a, is one page and there are no sub recipes, but you've been able to really fit in these traditional flavors. Like how the heck did you do that? Some of, I mean, some of it was challenging. The, the difficulty ethically is that I wanted to maintain the integrity of the food I was cooking and not dumb it down. This is not like six ingredients in 20 minutes every, you know, whatever, after school special meals. I wanted them to be full of flavor and I wanted them to feel sophisticated. But I also wanted to make sure that they were actually cookable and that, you know, no sub recipes. Not that I'm against sub recipes, but this is a home cook book. It's not a chefy chef book. And I wanted people to take the, it into their kitchens and actually use it and not feel intimidated by it at any level. So there are a few recipes that are a little more complicated, a little more of a challenge. Um, but really, I just wanted people to cook from him and, and to use the recipes, but still make sure that I was maintaining the authenticity of the flavors from. Yeah. That word is crazy. Came. Authenticity, man. That's a crazy word. And I it's think a scary you, word these days. You want to? It's an important word these days. Yeah. Did you did you feel challenged to like justify your this international cookbook? Did you feel that that was? You know, I didn't set out necessarily saying I was writing an international cookbook. It was a it. I always sort of pitched it or imagined it as a book about uh, my adventures in food and. I've been lucky enough to do a lot of travel. Even from a young age, my parents were great travelers. My father's from South Africa. My mother's from Montreal, but lived in Europe and Israel growing up. So we always traveled a ton as children, and that was always important to my parents and then in turn important to me. So it sort of happened naturally, and it's an amalgamation of dishes that I love to cook. But the great thing about living in a city like New York is that you can have access to every ingredient and every ethnicity and every cuisine at your fingertips. And you can eat Vietnamese for breakfast and Japanese for lunch and Mexican for dinner and then 16 other snacks in between. And so I think it's very much a reflection of how we all eat now. Yeah, definitely. I think one part too, we need to like really focus in about this book. It's not just an international cookbook. It's about cooking at home and getting people into the kitchen. And I thought, Chef lessons worth bringing home. You offer 15 of them in the book. I want to go through a couple of these. So let's say number one, mise en place is everything. Now I must say the word mise en place is challenging. Is that too chefy? But you right, it sounds you can sound a bit pretentious snobby. using mise en place. it. But so, explain what you mean by that because it's your first fundamental rule, and I think it's really important to know as a home cook. I think that well, you know, the whole section actually was not in my original proposal for the book. When I sat down with my editor at Grand Central, 
she wanted to bring more Top Chef into the book because obviously that's a big platform and a big piece of my life. And But we wanted to do it so that it felt organic to me and about learning to cook because I think the most amazing thing about being on the show for 12 years of my life, 12 years of my life, I was four when we started making the show. <laughs> I get younger every time I say that, by the way, um, is that we've learned, I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot and I've learned so much about cooking. I and mean, I, I started on the show because I was a cook and I was a food writer and I was working at Food Wine Magazine. So I had some experience. Obviously, they didn't just choose me otherwise. But um, in those 12 years, watching so many talented chefs cook, sitting at the table with such extraordinary talent and the breadth of talent we've had on the show, I've learned so much about cooking. So these 15 lessons actually are all sort of lessons that you hear on the show, that you hear us talk about, that you hear us tell the chefs. But they're all completely applicable to the home kitchen and people don't associate that. People, I think, watch the show and think this is just... Um, it's chefy chef talk and it doesn't really apply to me, but it's cool and it sounds neat, but really everything we talk about, including mise en place, which is really just being organized in the kitchen is such a crucial lesson. Organization tactic, right? right? It's about the idea of preparing yourself before you start cooking, which will ultimately set you up for success. With the, the tiny kitchen. little bowls, do you do right. that? Yeah, yeah you can do the tiny little bowls, but you also don't need to be precious about it when you're Good. in your home kitchen. Pile it up on your cutting board. or Completely agree. If, if you know that a yeah. few things are going into the pot at the same yeah. time, you can put them all in one bowl. But the fact that, you know, the point is read the recipe through, prepare and know what step is coming next and have everything set up, especially because there's a lot of recipes in the book where at the very end things come together quickly. So if you don't read through and know that that's about to happen, then it'll be more complicated at the end. Lesson number four, have a salt strategy. Yes. I love that. That's Samin Nosat was here who wrote a great book about salt, acid, heat. And yes. She talks does, writes extensively, but you also touch on it. Talk about salt. I mean, seasoning. Again, we always talk about seasoning on the show. Any cook will talk to you about how important it is to season your food properly. But seasoning your food isn't just kind of adding salt at one time. It's thinking about adding salt throughout the recipe, but in small increments, depending on obviously the steps of the recipe, so that you are seasoning thoughtfully and consistently so that at the end, you don't necessarily have to just keep throwing salt in and can't figure out why it's tasting superficial and it doesn't have the depth that it has. So I talk about different ways of salting different recipes. So when you're making a soup, you might salt at the very beginning and then you're going to salt at the, in the middle after you reduce it and then you're going to salt it at the end when you're doing those that final taste or when you're salting a salad or finishing a dish why putting a little salt on after it's finished cooking as well as before you cook it is important but to do it judiciously and do you have kosher salt on hand at all times you have molten yes. salt do you, have, you like, know what i, what I do you always like to have? i generally like to have two salts uh, a kosher salt that i cook with ubiquitously and then a fancier coarser salt, uh, flakier salt, like uh, Malden salt, um, or a celery for finishing certain things at the end. But I don't think that that's necessary for home cooks. Buy a big box of kosher salt and start there. And I think kosher salt is great because of its texture. You know, it's coarse and it's easy to feel and understand. Fine salt is hard to cook with because you can't control it as easily. Now on to five, 
know when a dish needs acid. That's like the next part. Yes. Like salt and acid work right. off each other. So what does that mean? Like acid uh, is important to, to balance out the salt that you that, maybe that's exactly salted. Right. It's important to balance out salt. It's important to balance out fat. People hear this on the show all the time. And in fact, Tom Clicchio and I often joke about how we've somehow created a generation of total monsters because <laughs> we go to restaurants and we're sitting at our table just like le- leisurely enjoying our meal and we can hear this young person at the table next to us saying, oh my God, this dish needs acid. And we've totally, it's, it's his fault. I'm going to blame it on Tom Colicchio. Um, and not only him, but you know, this kind of the, the cooking show. The jargon is now part of our life. Right, everyone, but, but it's true. And, and acid can come in many forms, vinegar, citrus, obviously. And it does play a really important role in the cooking process. Not that every single dish you make needs tons of lemon juice or vinegar or you know, pickle brine, although I do put a lot of pickle juice in my recipes, like five or six recipes in the book have pickle juice. It's and a good talk- ingredient. So you just always like keep the pickle jar and keep the juice in the Yeah, it's like liquid yeah. gold, that yeah. stuff. Pickle juice. Uh, if you take nothing else away yeah, tonight. It's a great brine. What but, a- but, but it does, um, I do think it adds dimension and it brightens the dishes that you cook. And in my rest, in, in my book, you'll see throughout the book, many different uses of different acids and how to implement them easily and just make everything tastier. Uh, lesson 10, maybe they should call it top scallop. And I think I, I, it's like a callback to like a season two of yeah, top chef season five, but there's Sorry, been a lot of the seasons. earlier season. Yes. Old but, school, top chef, old school, top chef, but you were, you're referring to the scallop as being this like really, really important and versatile ingredient that you can find in most grocery stores. Right. I, you I know, there was, there's so always good. every season, you know, there's, there was the season of the scallop. There was the season of the crudo and people laugh at that. And people always ask me, God, why do the chefs always make a crudo? Or I'm, and we laugh at it and we kind of make fun of it. But truthfully, it's because they're smart and they're limited in time. And that applies to the home kitchen too. When I have 20 minutes to make dinner and I want something that's impressive and beautiful and simple to cook, go for the scallop. I mean, get good quality scallops, buy them from a, a source that you trust. Do you have, can you smell them? Like, how do you Sure, know, you like- can smell them. They should not look dry. Yeah. They shouldn't be dry. So, so there's a difference between a dry scallop and a wet scallop. Um, you want to buy a dry scallop in that it hasn't been treated with chemicals that actually preserve it and weigh it down. So it will weigh more, which means it will cost more. But it also will exude a lot of liquid when you put it in a pan, and it's often waterlogged. So you want to ask to make sure that scallops are dry, but they shouldn't be dried out physically. They should look moist and fresh. They should smell briny but not fishy. Yeah. And scallops, things like scallops or quick-cooking seafood, almost all seafood, is a great choice when you need to think on your feet, cook quickly, and it's sort of a blank canvas for a million flavors. Uh, lesson 13, the final lesson I'm going to, but there's like 20, no, 15 of them. So know how to make one great dessert. So what is that one great dessert for you? I think that's good. good um, there's a couple of desserts that yeah. I sort of rely on. Um, I mean, there's a banoffee pie in my book that's um, a chocolate wafer crust with dolce de leche and bananas and whipped cream and roasted peanuts. And it requires zero cooking, but it looks incredible. So, the, you know, the sort of joke of that lesson is that, every, that you know, most chefs are not pastry chefs. They're very different kitchens. And people always talk about why can't the chefs on Top Chef make desserts. And truthfully, 
there's a big was difference. That another show wasn't that like the yes, other it's, a, it's a whole. Show. It was a whole show. Two seasons was canceled, but it was yeah. really good. Yeah, um, it shows how much people care about desserts. I ate a lot of cupcakes on yeah. that show. <laughs> the truth is, making pastry and making dessert are two different things, and making pastry is an art and a, a craft unto itself. But making dessert doesn't need to be complicated and stressful. In fact, I have a dessert that's just grilled pineapple with molasses and lime zest, and you're done, right? Or, you know, there's there's like five or six desserts in my book that require n- no baking skill and you don't even have to turn your oven on. So I just think that it's not a hard... I'm always amazed on the show. Like, really? You didn't come here with one dessert? You 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 can do better than that. And I think we all can do better than that. There's got to be like a Top Chef for Dummies like email or <laughs> shared, shared doc that I goes around. I wish we were allowed to just send them the, like, do me a favor. Make like, it easy on us this season. Here are the top 10 things. Well, maybe I'll just send them all my book now. <laughs> so we're in a bookstore. I always like like to ask about books, um, and you call out two books that really meant a lot to you. So one is the Moosewood Bible. Oh yeah. So talk about the importance of that book and when it came into your life. So uh, dirty little secret: when I was probably fifteen until I was twenty-one, I was a vegetarian. Figured so. <laughs> For many reasons, and that and all noble, and I'm no longer a vegetarian. But at the time, that was also the same time that I started cooking in earnest. And I was at college, and my mother was an amazing cook, and I would lug things home from Toronto to Montreal every time I went to visit her, and her recipes, and call her at all hours of the day and night getting recipes from her. And the first book that I bought for myself, cookbook, at a secondhand bookstore in Montreal was the Moosewood Bible. Um, and, you know, Molly Katzen was sort of a trailblazer, um, in the 70s and 80s, making amazing, at the time, really dynamic vegetarian food. And so that was the first book I really cooked from and splattered the pages and came home and, you know, made butternut squash soup for the, the first time. Did you make the moussaka? No, that's you know, like it's funny that you, everyone one. makes the moussaka. No, yeah. I don't think I, I don't remember ever making yeah, the moussaka. That's good. But that sounds good. So good. And it's still on my shelf and it's still a great book to reference for a lot of things. And the other book is is Jeffrey Steingarten's The Man Who Ate Everything. Yes. Is that right how you say it? Being a, a badass critic basically is like how, like what that guy taught everyone in food writing to do. So you read that book, but you didn't just love that book. You wanted to work with Jeffrey. Like you you found this guy was going to be a mentor to you, right? Is that someone gave me this book to read, and I read it in like two sittings, and I mean it quite literally changed my life. It sounds very dramatic, but I was just about ready to leave the kitchen. I knew I wanted to write about food and I was trying to figure out what the next steps would be. And I read this book and a light went on. This is what I wanted to be. Not Jeffrey, because no one was going to be Jeffrey. Jeffrey is this mad scientist. He is a, I I believe, one of the greatest food writers of our time. And what I wanted to be was his assistant. And I read this book and in the book he talks about his assistants at the time, a woman named Catherine and a woman named Tara. And... In the book, they are running to the market one day to buy exotic ingredients, and then they're doing research at the New York Public Library, and then they're spending a month in the kitchen perfecting a recipe for him. And this was the job. Like, I didn't know that this job actually existed. So I went to my culinary school career counselor with the book, as if I was the first person to discover this book. And I was like, do you know this book? Because this is what I want to do. This is the man. I, I want to work for someone like Jeffrey. And his response was... I bumped into him last week and his assistant, Catherine, is leaving and he's looking for a new assistant. And so that was like, um, that was a Wednesday. 
and I interviewed on the Friday and I got the job on the Monday. I, I don't know how I got the job because the interview was so stressful. He made me translate from Spanish and French. He made me translate a French cookbook by Ducasse, a Spanish, the, the original Il Bouli cookbook in Spanish. He made me do translation because it said on my resume that I speak French and Spanish. So note to self, when you put that on your resume, you better effing be able to prove it. Um, he made me taste these Brazilian ribs that he was bait cooking at the time. I had to taste wine and give tasting notes. Um, he, you know, there were so many moments. He asked me what my favorite restaurants were in New York. Answer at the time? Well, this was the thing. You know, I was a line cook. I had no money. I wasn't going to fancy restaurants, but I had just eaten at this sushi restaurant in the village called Tomo, I think. Is it still yeah, there? Yeah, Greenwich Village. Oh, yeah. Salt Remember Street? that place? Yeah. And that was like a big deal for me. And I like blew a week's pay on that sushi restaurant. So I told him Tomo. And he said, you don't read Vogue magazine, do you? And I was like, why? What do you mean? He had like just written a huge article about how it was like the crappiest sushi restaurant in America. <laughs> so I was like, all right, that's it. You know, like life is great. I got three hours with Jeffrey Steingarten. I can like go back to Canada happy. I have like fulfilled my New York story. And somehow he let me have the job. Tell me about the errands because you write about it in your book and you refer to it in his book, but like you were a gopher, an intern, an assistant. He could assistant. do everything. So, I mean, I did all of those things. We made Cacovan for three months. The key to Cacovan is what? Because you write about this. Is it is old roosters. Old roosters. That's the cock. The whole point was, I guess, in French farmsteads, what to do when you have all these old roosters that can't uh, produce and can't um, procreate anymore. And what do you make with them? Because they're really tough and they're old. So you brine them in wine. You know, you soak them in wine to soften them and you make a really rich stew. And so he set out to make authentic cacovin. And so we needed to find a lot of roosters. And so my job was to procure roosters uh, from a chicken farm in Queens for a long time. And we had this delivery of old roosters. They were dead every day because it's sort of a three-day process and actually that was what we were making over 9-11 the chef at Balthazar the chefs at Balthazar at the time were organizing trucks of food to go down to the rescue workers and so every day I would bring vats of cacovin to them and they would send them down to the um to the rescue workers at 9-11 for 9-11 you know at the time yeah so you you take a lot of pilgrimages in this book like you're talking about so let's talk about the idea of the pilgrimage like the food pilgrimage what makes like the perfect or the a great food pilgrimage? Hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. I'm conflicted about this a little bit. So many of us travel for food, and we have a list of places we have to go when we go to play. We go to different cities, but um, then if you don't go, then you're sort of like there's a shaming process of like you couldn't get in, or you do, how do you do it, and how do you, and and this sort of social media frenzy around having to go to the place. Currency, it's cultural it, currency. It like cultural our currency. Instagram accounts are cultural currency. Absolutely. So you know the the lesson of Chaka Levang, the lesson in Vietnam when I tried to go to this restaurant many times and failed and lost my mind about it was that I have to be a little looser about the bucket list. So I love, I love making food pilgrimages, but they also set expectations really high. And what I think I love about food discovery travel of all kinds is that it really is about the path. This is cliche, but like the path less taken in that place that you find that you don't anticipate or that you weren't 
planning two months in advance to eat at or to go to. And those become the most memorable meals because they were surprises on the road. Or, you know, there's many recipes in my book. I have a, a ribolita recipe, simple Italian bread and bean vegetable soup recipe, which came out of uh, when my husband and I were in Italy many years ago and we were meeting my father in Siena and at the at the cathedral there at the Duomo and it was pouring rain and like like buckets, sheets of rain and we were caught in the rain so we ducked into this like total dive bar just to get out of the rain and like have a glass of wine and wait it out before we could go find my father and this place all they had on the menu were like three things one of them was ribolita and they served us this soup it was so um satisfying and so uh, you know completely comforting and delicious and hearty and flavorful that i never forgot it and came, went home and started making ribolita and so this very simple soup is now so important to me and that kind of became a pilgrimage without knowing it you can't you can't like plan that right I wanted to ask a final question, and um, you know, you worked at Le Cirque 2000, you worked at Vong, you worked at many restaurants. You know, there's been a lot reported recently about abuse in kitchens. You know, it's it's an unfolding story. Everyone's in this room. This is a I'm big sure. question for the last question, but I'm ready for it. So, so tell me, Gail, did you experience any similar? Did you experience abuse in the kitchen? It's an important thing to think about. Um, it's due time that we think about it a lot more. Kitchens have always, you know, I have a lot to say about this. I'm going to try and keep it brief. I I wasn't treated well, necessarily. Um, There were many times when I was, you know, I hurt myself on the line and I was told to take it like a man. There were times when I certainly was chastised because I couldn't lift the heavy pots or, um, you know, I couldn't complete a task as quickly as the, the other cooks could. But I I never ever processed it as abuse. I don't I don't think that I was abused. Um and I think that it's due time that kitchens are run like businesses because restaurants are businesses and um and corporations need to have systems and companies need to have systems and they need to have places where you feel safe going to work every day, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter your gender. And so I, I'm glad that we're at a moment where we can talk about these things a little more openly and think about the way that kitchens are structured and the way that we treat employees and not just kitchen employees, but front of house employees, administrative employees, because for some reason, restaurants have always sort of imagined themselves outside the scope of business. People forget that restaurants are businesses. And, and, but they have negated, I think, often the traditional systems and operations. Human that, resources. Human resources, operations. And that's not all kitchens. It's an exaggeration to think that all kitchens are like that. I worked for Danielle Boulou for three years and he, you know, when I started working for him, he had three big kitchens in New York and now he has something like 11. And I'm not saying they were easy kitchens and they certainly, the male female ratio, was 10 to 1 but there was a respect in the kitchen and I think that was from the top down and I think that that's the only way that things will really change is if uh, the male leaders in the industry make change I mean you know and it's one thing for female chefs 
to write about it and scream it from the hilltops and talk about it. But there needs to be more male leaders coming forward to to speak openly about it and to and to implement change in their restaurants. But I also think that there's a lot of reasons why they aren't. I think that a lot of them are scared, not because they're guilty of horrendous things, but because they probably don't know exactly and aren't in control exactly of how all their kitchens are run. So, you know, there's a lot of factors, but I also think that there's a lot of chefs who do it right. And there's a lot of great chefs, great male chefs who are setting great examples in kitchens and who are running well-run, well-respected kitchens. Well, I think the conversation is is starting to to open up. And I, again, I really appreciate you speaking publicly about this because not enough people are doing it. I totally agree. It's a big conversation. And I, and I it, this, is a, this is a weird thing to say, but I, you know, sometimes I feel this sort of survivor's guilt because I feel like I should also be telling stories of how I was abused in a kitchen, but I but I wasn't, or I don't, I don't feel that. And now I feel sort of maybe guilty that should I be speaking out more? And I'm still sort of finding my path with, you know, if I have a platform to speak out about it, how I do so properly and respectfully as well without alienating people. I mean, this is a start. Yeah. But um, I'm going to wrap it up and just, and say, just thank you, Gail, for, for coming here and, and being awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In our next segment, we are talking to Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen and asking her a question from a reader. Deb Perlman, we're here in your kitchen in New York City. We have a reader question. So if you were to write an entire cookbook based on one ingredient, what would that one ingredient be? Oh, my goodness. I'm like artichokes, but no, they're not that versatile. There's so much subtext artichokes, too. I feel like you'd have to have like all these weird jokes. No, because I, I don't think they're like the most... You know, usable thing. And I also like to eat them fairly plain. So, oh my goodness, I should. Um, Can I do a popcorn cookbook? Yes, you can. Let's go there. I Let's love that. Popcorn. I'm going to do a popcorn cookbook. Right, I don't know what I'm going to, what hundred things I'm going to do with it, but I have a few. You ideas. could do 55 and maybe do a little bit of front matter and have a little back. <laughs> you, you, you'll sell it for like $12.95. You'll do really well. So, let's talk about this popcorn cookbook. Oh no. I have, I should spend more time thinking about it. So, your this. agent, I'm like your agent. I'm here sitting here and, and we're talking about this popcorn cookbook. What is this <laughs> popcorn like, cookbook all about? Like, how do you love to make popcorn? What's the number? What's your first popcorn recipe? My first popcorn recipe would be I love the kale pecorino popcorn in my new book I know that's like so on um it's like you know just call it cacio pepe with kale in it and you've got all the trend, all the trends of two years ago in one place um I love the idea of doing it like simple preparations but I also actually like in my first cookbook I have a um, buttered popcorn cookie um like so I just kind of like the idea of using it as like a crunch factor and other things and I also have always wanted to make a caramel corn cake, like party cake. I have an idea. So you're going like ways to incorporate popcorn into more dishes. I think that's dishes. where I'm going to start. I think I would start there. And I also, um, I've done this sort of like buffalo chicken popcorn before. Um, it's basically out. like wow. part hot sauce, part butter. Um, and then you can serve it like with blue cheese. So that was like five things right there. You can buy this idea from me. We're doing the table of contents fee. right now. Um, <laughs> were you a microwave popcorn person growing up, or did you always use stovetop, or did you do those cool machines? So we did microwave air pop. We had this um, air popper, and it was funny because I just saw one of them recently at like William Sonoma. I'm like, oh, are these coming back? Is this my childhood? But we so was, you could do like no oil. Um, 
you, I would definitely add butter at the end, but like for popping, it was just very clean and simple. So it was just an air popper. Um, and then as an adult, I would do it on the stove. But somebody um, for Christmas this year got us an air popper and like it looks like an old fashioned machine. And like whenever the kids see it, they're like, popcorn, popcorn, I want popcorn. And it's actually, it's very easy because you just throw the corn in and it just. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read your popcorn book in 20. 20- <laughs> 21 um taste might publish it we're just gonna maybe just throw that out we're there we're just gonna do a single a single subject we're gonna give um where are those people that do the uh the short stack short stack yeah. you're gonna give them a run for their um their money <laughs> you yeah. heard it here first well thanks deb appreciate it the taste podcast is hosted by anna hiesel and myself matt rodbard it is produced by gabrielle lewis our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to Books Are Magic fam Michael, Mike, and Emma. Confidence wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and see you next week.